Hi everyone. Um, my name is Mariana Dale and I'm a New Voices Scholar and I get the lovely privilege of introducing Marianne McCune in a couple seconds. But first I just wanted to say that if you see any of my fellow New Voices out there, we have these little handy identifying taggy things. Um, you should definitely talk to them because it's a super passionate group of reporters, media makers, cartoonists, graphic artists, and every single one of them is so stoked about public media and so excited to be here. Um, so definitely talk to them, and that's not just me inflating my own ego. Everyone else is really amazing. Um, as is uh, Marianne McCune, who's going to be doing this session, Making News Stories, Good Stories. Um, I had to like hold myself back from going yesterday because everyone said, oh, it's so great. So I was like, wait, I have to present it, so I have to wait till today. Um, she's a veteran of NPR news reporting. She just moved uh, to San Francisco to work on some projects there. She's done amazing stories from the U.S. and from abroad. There's like a whole cabinet of awards she must have somewhere, uh, including two Third Coast Best News Feature Awards which is pretty impressive. Um, but don't get like too intimidated. She's still a normal human. Um, and actually, at Third Coast um, a couple years ago, she got kicked out of the hotel because a teen she was chaperoning uh, spit on the fur coat of another hotel guest. So, yeah, she still makes mistakes like the rest of us. And um, just so you know, New Voices scholars don't spit either. So <laughs> come talk to us, and I really hope that you enjoy this session. I just have to say that the mistake that I made in that situation was because it was a radio rookie, and you know it's all about with radio rookies. I, radio rookies is a youth radio program that I started at WNYC and edited for a long time. But the we were chaperoning this group of radio rookies, and the girl is was super activist, wonderful young woman, and our whole thing in radio rookies is like you, you know, we will help you speak your mind. <laughs> and so when it happened, the other, Serena Patel, who was with me, we both just spent too long going <laughs> and not figuring out that we needed to apologize <laughs> really fast and start sort of the diplomacy process. I think we were like, what do we do? What do we do? Anyways, we still got to come to the conference. Okay. Um, I thought I was going to feel less nervous today because it's the second time doing it, but I've gone to all these great sessions of other people's and I feel a little intimidated by them because it's been so great. You, I hope you guys have been enjoying yourselves and feeling as inspired as I do. So, are people feeling inspired? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, all right. So, you're a reporter. Uh, there's a huge storm and you're in your city, it, there's, a, there's been major flooding, there's a blackout, uh, you know, really huge blackout. It's day three, and you're sent to cover a neighborhood that has a lot of public housing buildings. So you think, you know, maybe you'll just do something like this. It's day three of Storm Sandy, and thousands of elderly residents of public housing may still be stuck in their apartments. With no electricity, the stairwells in tall buildings are completely dark, and some residents are afraid to venture down. Bob Smith of the Henry Street Settlement says his volunteers have been bringing meals to as many residents of high floors as they can find. Some of our drivers are coming back reporting that when they deliver boxes either to a high-up floor or to a, 
particular destinations that our seniors are literally crying just to have that contact. 87-year-old Margaret Maynard says she does not want to leave her apartment. I don't want to go to no shelter. So it's okay. It gets the information across, but it's a little bit boring. It's a little bit like everything you hear. And you want to do something more exciting. You're, like, feeling creative, and you want to do something memorable. So you're thinking something like this. Hey, it's Morning Edition. I'm Marianne McCune. And here in downtown Manhattan, where the flood is still receding and the lights are still out, I want to tell you a story about the dark. The kind of dark where you can't see anything. You can't see shapes or shadows. You can't see your hands, your feet. You definitely cannot see where you're going. But you need to go. You have to get to the other side of it. (laughs) So this is not going to work either. Because it's morning edition. You're, they're not going to take it. Nobody has time for you. Nobody has time for this story. And uh, your editor is asking you what drugs you took. <laughs> so we're here today to find a middle ground between these things, to talk about trying to do news stories that are memorable and have some, if not all, of the elements of good storytelling that we talk about at conferences like this and that you hear in your favorite podcasts and shows Um, Things like a beginning, a middle, and end, stakes and surprises and revelations and maybe even suspense. Um, But I want to talk about the ways of reporting that, some ways of reporting that I think give you a better chance of working some of those things into your news story. And I just want to say, if I say something that doesn't make sense, somebody should just yell out, what do you mean? And um, we're going to do questions at the end, and you're all supposed to come up to the mic when you ask questions. Um, okay, so I'm going to start by playing a story, the story that I did that day, three of the storm. Um, I made a t- few tiny edits, but it's basically the same story. Um, and I'm using it because I got more good feedback on that story than I think I've ever gotten on any story. Um, and it's sort of funny because some stories you work for weeks or months or years on and you and you hardly get any feedback at all, and then you go out and do a story in a day, and people are go crazy for it. Somebody even wrote to Laura Walker, the president of WNYC, saying that she should give me a raise. <laughs> it did not happen. <laughs> um, um, so, of course, it's flawed, and I took some of the flaws out, but, <laughs> but not all of them. Um, and uh, but I think this piece is a good case study. It gives us it gives me a chance to think about what are the reasons that it it succeeded. What are the reasons that it really popped out for people? Um, so I'm just going to give you a little background on how scrappy the whole situation was. It's true, it's huge parts of the city had been flooded. Our my boiler was underwater in our building. Our electricity was out. WNYC's electricity was out. Um, uh, so by day three, we had moved in with some friends who live in Brooklyn. Also, the schools were closed, so the kids were there. And um, so we moved in with friends in Brooklyn, and uh, the parents were taking turns taking care of the kids, except I didn't take any turns. <laughs> um, <laughs> and um, uh, we're biking everywhere because the subways weren't working. And so Wednesday morning, my editor tells me, hey, I want you to go check out the public housing along the East River. Just go there and see what you find. So I bike over the Brooklyn Bridge. And when I get 
across the Brooklyn Bridge, I check my email on my phone, and there's an email from Joe Richmond and Sue Johnson, my good friends, that they forwarded from good friends of theirs who were forwarding a message from another friend of theirs saying, hey, you know, I know we live in the East Village, so and it's near the Lower East Side where I was, so they were saying, could, you, could anybody, any of you, check on this, this friend of ours, um, great aunt, because they, they haven't been able to reach her, the phones aren't working, and nobody knows where she is. And I was like eight blocks from the address, so I wrote back immediately, I'm right there, I can totally check on her, do you mind if I interview her? <laughs> and um, and they, I, I don't know how the email response got back so fast, but definitely before I got there, they had somebody had emailed back, but who doesn't even know her, I just want to point out, but saying, it's fine with us as long as she's fine with it. And I wrote back, okay, I'll be human first, reporter second, and headed there. Um, and then you'll hear what I found in the story. And then after reporting the story, I um, biked to the station. I had to do a live two-way about everything I'd found within like 45 minutes from there. So just like banging out what was the story, pulling a couple cuts. Then went home. It was Halloween, so I caught a tiny bit of trick-or-treating, <laughs> and then wrote the story, edited it, um, I wrote the story, pulled the cuts, edited it at like 10 o'clock with my editor, recorded under a blanket next to sleeping people, and produced it on a really old Pro Tools computer I have that has, the screen is messed up, so it has a big black stripe through the screen. <laughs> um, that's a detail you don't need, but anyways. Um, and I think I filed it at like 3.30 in the morning. So I mixed it myself, which is not normally how it works at WNYC. And this, here's the story. Margaret Maynard lives on the eighth floor. And when I got there via the stairs, a family of Chinese immigrants emerged from the door next to hers. You're going to our relatives right now to take a shower because we haven't had water. The neighborhood has no power, and in a 16-floor building, that means no water either. Margaret? Hi. I explained to Mrs. Maynard that a friend of a friend of her nephews in the British West Indies had sent an email saying they couldn't reach her and could someone check in. Okay, so far. No water, no... Do you want to call your relatives on my phone? Okay. Thank Wearing you. slippers and layers of house dresses and sweaters. She says she's fine, despite the fact that no one has checked on her until now. I'm 87 years old. She has a radio with batteries. She's been eating crackers and orange juice and has other canned and boxed foods. But she's wondering what happened to the ham she thought was in her fridge. Let me get a phone book. When the power went out Monday, so did her phone. Since then, she's talked to no one. She shuffles through the apartment looking for her phone book so we can call her relatives. You want me to look in the fridge for the ham while you're looking yeah, for yeah. the brown book? Okay. You don't see no ham in there, right? I didn't see any. Your refrigerator smells a little bit like things are starting to go bad, oh, too. Oh, God, I'm ready. We try her sister in Brooklyn, but the call doesn't go through. Really? Wait, not yet. So Where she gives me a number service? in Harlem. Her best friend, the maid of honor in her wedding 60 years ago. Oh, it's ringing. Hello? Doris. Yes. Um, there's a reporter from the news helping me out here. Bernice was trying to get you. They can't get me because I, I don't have no phone, no light, no nothing. So what you going to do now? 
What I can do, can't do nothing. The two start to go back and forth, arguing about whether Mrs. Maynard should leave. I can't come down the steps because all the lights are out and whatnot. What am I going to do? You know, I can't walk too good. Once you can, stay there like that, Margaret. Yeah, that's okay. Oh, Lord. I don't want to go to no shelter. She says she's fine on water, fine on food. The only thing she's worried about is figuring out a way to flush the toilet. I got to flush it. I don't want it to flow, overflow now, so that'd be another mess. <laughs> that would be another, another mess. mess. I, I'm not complaining. Some people worse off than I, you know. I say goodbye, thinking I'll go to the senior center to see what they can do. The stairway going down is black. You see nothing if you don't have a light. And the people going down ahead of me don't. Everything okay? No, because we don't have no light. Do you, I have my phone for a flashlight. I can come down with you okay, guys. Okay, can you come in front of us? Yeah. Thank you. Thank no you. problem. I lead them down a floor before my light goes out. Uh-oh, my phone just died. Just okay. hold on, please. Hold yeah, on. yeah, yeah. Then another light appears below us. All right, thank you. All right. Somebody's lighting up the stairs for us with a lighter. They, they selling three dollar flashlights up the block somewhere. All right. How are you guys doing? Bad. Is everybody doing bad over here? And they, okay. it should have been an emergency water truck over here. They didn't see if we had food or anything. You know, the supermarkets don't even really want to sell anything. Many residents here rely on food stamp cards, but without electricity, the stores won't accept them. They open, but if you don't have cash, you, you, you messed up. Let's see, is this the exit? Once outside, Candy Silva explains she and her son just moved here from a homeless shelter in the Bronx. This is her first day out since the storm, and she knows nothing about the extent of the power outage. Where is, like, is it the whole city? Oh, the whole, what is it? I tell her Upper Manhattan and much of the city have electricity. electricity. Really? We have to get a cab so it could take us to the bank and then we get some money. This is really frustrating. This is really bad. I'm so scared. And we just moved here a week ago. I gotta go now. Across the street, there's free water. All right, I'm walking up to a fire hydrant, and people are filling jars and all kinds of bottles with water from the hydrant. We need to flush those toilets. Carmen Cortez says she won't let bacteria grow in hers. It's about survival. Further down the block is the senior center, which is closed. But it's run by Henry Street Settlement, and across the street, employees are giving out meals. We're giving out lunches. Henry Street delivers to the homes of senior citizens even when there's no hurricane. But this week, the group's executive director says they're also trying to get to people who just can't come down the stairs. Some of our drivers are coming back reporting that when they deliver boxes either to a high up floor or to a uh, particular destinations that our seniors are literally crying, not only because they were remembered in the storm, but just to have that contact with the driver. I tell him about Margaret Maynard on the eighth floor of LaGuardia Houses, and he says he'll get someone there. But later in the day, I learn she's all taken care of. Doris George, the maid of honor, called Mrs. Maynard's sister. Her sister mobilized her own son, and Mrs. Maynard is now safely with him in Queens. Like it or not. For WNYC, I'm Marianne McCune. Thank you. Um, Okay, so I've gone through this story and thought about why I think it stood out for people. And, um, excuse me, what I did that worked. Um, 
And a lot of it, when I first started, tried saying it out loud, sounded really obvious. <laughs> so I, I, um, I think, and I do think a lot of the people in this room know these things, but um, I tried to, I tried, so I try to put sort of a different vocabulary on it so that um, if you do already know this, at least you have a little bit of a new lens on it. Um, and that I also want to point out, I am not a model of efficiency. I have some editors in the room who can attest to that. And, um, and a lot of the things that I'm going to say, even though we're talking about doing daily news, or you know, it's not only about daily news, but doing things on deadline, it will sound like I'm telling you to do something that's less efficient. And in some ways, that's true. Um, uh, and I'm not apologizing for that. <laughs> um, but I do want. But everything that we're talking about, you can do quickly. If somebody asked yesterday, like, can you do all these things? This is my vocabulary list over here. Can you do all these things in a minute and a half story that you're doing in a day? I think you can. And so I did this story definitely in a day. So, okay. So, my first thing, my my first strategy is to use the in betweens. Record them. Have your recorder on all the time, and if you don't have your recorder on, still remember them, and you can use them. Um, if you, it, the in-betweens give you a through line. They can give you a through line, and they can give you glue for different parts of your story. Um, you don't have to ignore them. You can actually use them, and the process, your process can be uh, your arc in a way. Um, so. In this Sandy story, obviously half like half the story is the in betweens. It's everything that happened before and and you know between. I didn't. And what I mean is, it's not. I didn't go and get the interview and then leave and get another interview somewhere else. There's all this stuff stuff that happens along the way, and I think that that's part of the, the thing that people respond to in the story. Um, and in betweens don't just give you glue and structure, but they also give you information. Um, I have another example of this, like, of a way in which the in-betweens can give you context and actually communicate something in your story. Um, so this is uh, from a story about a boxer, a, a woman boxer in Brooklyn. And it's just a little example of how um, using the in-between gets a little bit more information. So um, what do I need to tell you about her? So I talked to Heather Hardy in the gym, in Gleason's gym, where she boxes. It's a famous gym. And this first piece of the tape is just from a little interview talking to the owner of Gleason's in his office. And then we'll get to the second piece. So this is just to set it up. Gleason's was actually a leader in allowing women into the gym to box in the early 80s. See that, that group right in the middle of those women? Owner Bruce Silverglades got a photograph of the first group of women to train here. He says he saw they wanted to box, saw they'd pay money to do it. So we closed down the gym for them two nights a week. It's a big gym. It's got a big name. So when we do something, then a lot of people follow what we do. Okay, so then we're in the office. And later in the office, this guy walks in. Welcome home. Thank you very much. How are you? Back in Silverglade's office, a 71-year-old trainer and promoter named Tommy Gallagher stops by. And Silverglade says... Ask him what he thinks of women boxing. It's a disgrace. You're talking about a woman. The most precious thing there is in this world being in a violent situation. For what? And a guy should do it because? Because that's what the guys did. Close your eyes and see. Out of the cave. You and me. We have little things trying to nibble on your breast. 
and I'm going out to get the food or whatever, and I got to fight all five guys to come in. That's where it came from, to, to, to preserve ourselves. I try to get him to put females on his shows, but he's one of the fellows that doesn't want it. Tommy Gallagher says it's in men's DNA to fight. Heather Hardy says it's in hers. I'm programmed to do it. I really am. You know, my mom always said, somebody pushes you, you punch them in the face and you make sure you draw blood. Don't make anybody want you to hit them two times. My mother has given me some of the worst beatings in my life, but every one I got, I deserved. It is in me to fight. So the reason I play that is because I think that it communicates so much more that you know that Tommy is just walking around the gym and just walks into the office and these are the things he thinks as opposed to my having gone and find the, found the guy who is most against women boxing and got the most outrageous tape. Like this, He just walked in there and he said that stuff. And I didn't have to... I didn't have to be recording. I didn't have to use it that way. But I think it communicates much more to know that he and Heather Hardy are walking around the gym together. And this is what he thinks. And this is what she thinks. Um, One more thing about the in-betweens is that they're where accidents happen. And like people start, you know, like the phone going out in the dark hallway or... um, even if you're not trying to capture them, when those accidents happen in the in-betweens, try to remember to use them. And I'm, I'm saying this because I learned it from Joe Richman in my first radio class that I ever took. And he, I, I always remember this story he played for us. Um, he did this story back in 1932. <laughs> and then he played it for me in the class that I took from him in 1954. And um, uh, but I've always remembered this moment in his tape, and so here it is. Uh, he was—it's a profile of Vic Chestnut, the singer-songwriter, and he's—he's he's talking to him. He's sitting with him, talking to him about all his guitars, and it's just here's what happens. Here's what it sounds like now. <laughs> sad now. Here's my new guitar I just got. It's a really good Spanish guitar. I finally got it. I could afford to buy a really good nylon string guitar. And it's got this great smooth tone. I love this guitar. I love it. I love it. I love it. Oh, I used to love it. So <laughs> that moment stuck with me for so long, and it's what, I think it's a very instructive moment. that you, Those things that happen can make your story. All these little short in-between moments contribute so much to a story. So you should not be so focused on the forest that you don't see the trees. Okay, my next strategy is linger, exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. And this is a little counterintuitive because we're talking about news and you have a deadline and you're supposed to be getting back with the story. And I think this is why a lot of news stories do tend to be sort of boilerplate because it's hard to do stuff in a hurry. But I really believe that you should figure out the maximum lingering time that you can have for whatever story. You know, if you have to do it in two days, then maybe you have a day to linger. If you have three hours, maybe you have an app, you know, 
and you're producing something short, maybe you linger for an hour and then go home and produce it. But you have to know yourself well enough to know how fast you can produce the story on the other end. Um, uh, and I think that lingering is basically a friendly way of invading people's space. So um, you have to... It, to linger effectively, you, you probably need to get permission, or at least in some situations you do. But in order to get permission, you need to linger. So um, so for the Sandy story, it's also, I mean, it's all in-betweens and it's all lingering. I lingered at Margaret Maynard's door, and then I lingered in her apartment, and then lingered in the stairwell and outside. And, um, and the reason I think it's so important is because while you're lingering, things happen. And more happens than the thing that you came for. Uh, and then your story has a way to move. It's, and that is obviously really important. Lingering opens up this chance for something to unfold in your story. So I'm going to play you a, a couple pieces from this story that I did after the Haiti earthquake of 2010. Uh, I went to Brooklyn and found some guys to linger with. And um, uh, I, fa- I met this guy named, whose nickname was Aïtien, which means Haitian in French. So here, uh, wait, what is this first clip? Yeah, this is the first clip. Three years ago, he and a friend created a school and youth center in his old neighborhood. Now he wants to get back to Haiti to help the students and to find his mother, whom he hasn't heard from yet. Me and my brother and my friend, we're planning to travel by Monday. Problem is, there are no flights available. So while they wait, they're using their white construction van to drive around Brooklyn and pick up supplies to either send with an aid agency or carry themselves to Haiti. We cannot depend all the time on people, on outsiders. What about us? So... I found these guys, we have our project, I'm following them, we go pick up supplies and do this, and then here's what happens later when they meet up with a friend and I'm, they're lingering and I'm lingering with them, and here's all the stuff that happens. Cadet's friend Jean-Claude Denis is waiting downstairs in the wire transfer agency, and he's rattled. He says the last two people who came in to wire money each learned today they lost three family members. That's crazy. And then some places is so devastated. They can't even reach them. They can't even wire money to, the, to those places yet because nothing's functioning. Outside by the van, these four ask all the Haitians who walk by how they're faring. A woman stops to write down the name of a Red Cross website Denis has heard about, where people can list missing family members. Denis receives a phone call himself from his niece in Boston with good news about some cousins. And then he spots a commotion across the street. Three passersby are trying to console a woman who has just received a call. She says her sister and her sister's three children are dead. A Jamaican immigrant named Diane Joshua calls the woman's work to tell them she won't be in. But she only has the woman's first name. If you don't see someone coming today, you know that person. That's the person I'm talking about. So I think one of the, the most important things about lingering is that you end up seeing people in conversation with each other instead of just answering your questions. And I, I mean, that almost always gives you powerful tape. It's the reason why Margaret Maynard's tape is so good is because she's talking to her maid of honor of 60 years ago. Now, I, I, I could never have gotten the same tape. And in fact, when I went to make that first sort of newsier version of the story, I went to pull tape from her and I was like... There's not a good cut of tape in there. <laughs> I mean, there is, but 
but it's it's so much better when it's in conversation with her friend. Um, okay, more on lingering. I have a lot on lingering. This is a. Sorry, one quick question. Trying to follow rules. Yeah, no, um, that's right. So, do you have a technique or a protocol that you keep in a mind? Lingering technique. You no, know, seriously, because when you're lingering, you're bringing that many more people into production, and sometimes it's just scene sound, so you might not necessarily need permission. But you know, there's this hurdle that we all go through to establish permission before, after, during. Do you have anything that you keep in My mind strategy, when you're lingering? Yeah, I, I think I just, I think you always have your mic just out. So everybody can see what you're doing, and if anybody looks curious, you say, I, this is what I'm doing here. And it, you yourself have to feel like it's the most normal and comfortable thing in the world, and then other people tend to feel comfortable with it too. And if they don't, then you say, I, I will tell people if you don't want to be recorded, you know, tell me to stop, or uh, I won't record you, or anything like that. I'm not, in the case of that woman that's crying, like... You're obviously not going to go up to her and be like, excuse me, ma'am, I see you're in horrible yeah. misery. Can I just get your permission to record you as you're yeah. suffering? Yeah, I think that's the situation-by-situation situation thing. I think because it was the, this group of people that I had been lingering with and they were trusting me to be there that I, I just... I let myself do it. I don't think I, I... I don't remember, to be honest. It was a long time ago. But I, you know, I definitely would... In in her name's not in it, and it was happening on the street in front of everybody, so I, I felt like it was okay. But it's it's I don't. There's not one system for doing that, and maybe somebody else would have felt it was not okay. And sometimes people hear things like that on the radio, and they feel like it's not okay. So, um, okay. So this is just another example, just because I heard it. Three or three or four weeks ago on the radio, and it was a, like one moment during Morning Edition that popped out at me, and that I wanted to tell people about later. And it was because the reporter stayed there and and stayed beyond what when I think she could have easily decided to leave. So this is a story from um, Nareet Eisenman, who oh, I don't know, but I just pulled her story, <laughs> um, and it's she. It's about a. Hotel Wi-Fi thing keeps popping up. <laughs> Hold on. Okay, I think I solved that. Um, so it's about a CDC training for doctors and nurses who are, are going to go treat people with Ebola. And, um, and the part I'm going to play for you, it starts out kind of standard. Like she sees some of the training and she points out a problem and then she interviews the one of the people and who set the, and that sets up the stakes for that person of going and doing this. And then it's a part after that where she stays and these things happen that I think are so, that while I was listening, I was like, blah, 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 blah. Oh my God. So here it is. She figured she'd done a good job of suiting up. Then her buddy pointed out an area she'd left exposed. Right on the side of my face where the skin kept showing. The goggles weren't a fit quite right. And when he said that to you, you've got a little spot. Mm -hmm. What did that say to you? There's always room. There's always room for our... Bedlin will be working at an Ebola treatment unit in Liberia. I am leaving this weekend. Um, most likely Sunday. She flinches ever so slightly as she says this. But she says her family has been most anxious. Grandparents, parents, and friends. The look in their eyes towards me 
and the fear that they had. And my response to them is I was taught in my life to take good care of people no matter where they were in the world. So please don't keep me from that. Now you're about to enter the high risk. Mary Ann Schmitz walks into the mock patient ward in full protective gear. She labors to move under all the layers. She totters forward and steps into a basin of liquid to cleanse her boots. Then Schmitz makes her way to a mannequin. She presses a needle into his arm. Under the goggles, her glasses are starting to fog up. And now I want you to go and wash your hands because you have blood on it. I do. Okay. Then it's time to disrobe, and right off the bat, Schmidt's buddy loses her balance and touches her. Then an instructor points out that Schmitz has forgotten to wash her hands after removing a layer, and that a flap on her suit that was supposed to cover her neck has been hanging open. And now her buddy is taking her mask off the wrong way. You're, yeah, you just got your hands really close to your face. Uh, something to be mindful of. So it's just another, uh, to me, that list at the end, you're like, oh my God, this is terrifying all of a sudden. Um... Another way that lingering can be great is that when people see you lingering around and longer than other reporters or, um, you know, or just they, when people see you for a while, they, they are more likely to finally say, okay, I'll talk to you. And this is just an example from this um, uh, a long time ago. The United States had this policy called special registration soon after after the September 11th attacks, and um, everybody from a list of 19 countries, all immigrants and visitors from a list of 19 countries, were supposed to go to the INS, which is now Department of Homeland Security, and and register and say they were here and submit to questioning of any kind. And some of them were arrested on the spot, and some were were told that. Um, they had to. They were going to be ordered deported, and and here was the date that they had to show up again. So it was this policy where all these people from this one list of 19 countries had to go and line up and and do this process. So this first part is from a workshop uh, that immigration advocates were giving to the the immigrants, and it's just the, there's the first guy that I talked to, and again I could have left, and then there's somebody else who come who, from lingering. It looks like they don't have time to filter the people. So what they did, they say, let's go from A to Z, everybody. I don't blame whoever took this decision. But to be questioned as criminal is a kind of little bit annoying. Toward the end of the evening, in the mostly empty church, a Moroccan woman waits patiently in the front pew with her 11-year-old daughter. For them, special registration is far worse than annoying. My husband has to go to the registration. He doesn't have uh, no green card, no nothing. And uh, we have two kids. So I'm scared. I don't know. My daughter, she's in sixth grade now. (laughs) If I go back to my country, I can't pay school for her. Um, okay, a couple more lingering things. One is um, there's there's sometimes you do have longer time to do a story. You have weeks or and um, or 
well, or you're doing lots of news stories all the time, but you still have time to find other stories. And there's there's something I'm calling lingering requests. You should always what you know the places you want to get access to, the things that you want to see. You should have requests out to those people, and those people's job is to say either we can't do that or I'm not sure. And if they say I'm not sure, they're trying to discourage you from going back to them. You need to linger in your requests and, and keep coming back to the, to um, those people and saying, you know, hey, remember we talked about that? I still want to do that. I still want to, you know, see what it, what it is that you're going to allow me to see. And um, this is just an example of I, I put in a request once to go with um, – Homeland Security agents to to be present when they were going out to arrest alien fugitives, which are people who have been ordered deported but have not left. So they're 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 like on a list of people who are supposed to at some point be arrested when officials have when the agents have time, basically. Um, uh, and I didn't I don't even know why I thought I, they would ever let me do that, but they didn't say no. It was like a press guy I knew sort of well, and he was like, maybe we could work that out. And I, it was, I think, a year and a half before they, he came through. And it wasn't even him because he left his job and somebody else came. But I kept just like every few months would check in and say, hey, remember, we were going to do that thing. And in the end, amazingly, they said yes. And this is the story that I was able to do, just a little piece of it. About a quarter mile, we were making a right on 77th Street, which is a target block. At 6 in the morning, the agents gather in front of their building. The landlord lets them in. They head upstairs, press the bell on the couple's apartment, and Fatima appears in jeans, a white sweatshirt, and a tangle of morning hair. So six o'clock in the morning, I'm trying to do my breakfast. I open. Good morning, police. Fatima says she's been expecting this day for years. It's a good morning. Come on in. They cannot enter without consent, but Fatima cooperates completely. And she comes with me up and she says, they're here. I told her, so we leave in? She told me, yes, I think we leave in. Um, okay, last lingering thing. I'm just going to talk about, um, ling- like another way to think about lingering is just persisting in getting people to open up. And um, I'm not, I don't, I'm not going to play you with, piece of tape from the series, but there's a reporter named Kathleen Horan at WNYC who did a whole year-long series um, reporting on every child who was killed by gunfire. And this is, like, an incredibly difficult thing to do. I mean, obviously, there's lots of reporting that's hard to do, but it it was hard because it was trying to... It was talking about really sad stories with the families as soon after it happened as she could get to them. And it was this and trying to talk them into talking to her. And she just did, she spent so much time in neighborhoods, talking to people, getting to know people, and managing to, you know, find her way into the living rooms of all these people, all these families who had just lost their children. And it was because she was so persistent and in that slow, lingering way that makes people say, okay, maybe this is different. You know, she didn't go to the funeral and just shove a microphone in people's faces. She went to their neighborhoods and she got to know people. And um, and the result was just these beautiful stories where you're these very not judgmental, uh, even stories where you're just inside somebody's 
house and hearing about this terrible thing, but also hearing the memories of the the, per, the kid who was shot. Um, and just because we're on Kathleen, I'm going to play you a more fun piece of tape of hers. The other thing that Kathleen is really good at is banter, which is another kind of lingering, just like keeping people in conversation. And um, uh, when we were leaving, when WNYC used to be in the municipal building in New York, and when we were leaving, Kathleen did a very funny and wonderful ode to the building. Um, and because she, especially because she's such a good lingering banterer, she, she sort of knew a lot of the characters and she, she engaged them in really funny ways. And this is just um, uh, her talking to the security guard who was there every morning when we, when we got to work. Over the years, Cologne has jazzed up her blue uniform with most of the primary shades on the hair color wheel. Yes, I used to have blonde hair, then I dyed it like an orange color, then I went to brown, then I went to red, and now I'm black. And she used to have 13 and a half inch nails that were painted differently depending on the holiday. But she had to clip them for her job. It was like I was a celebrity before they made me cut my nails, yes. And then they thought, you know, if you have a firearm, was that why? Or? Yes, you know, you cannot pull a trigger with those long nails that I had. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, okay, so next on my list is make people memorable. And I think it's great if you find a memorable person who speaks so wonderfully that the piece of tape pops so much that everybody's like, did you hear that piece of tape on the radio? It was incredible, or to hear that person. But more often than not, you have to do some work to make people memorable. And, um, and, I don't, I'm not going to play you anything for this, but just the, the idea is find the details that will make the person memorable. So I think Margaret Maynard was a great talker, and she's a memorable, she's just lovely, and people really liked her, but it's also because you knew that she was shuffling around in her slippers, and she had three layers of clothes on, and she, she was looking for ham. She thought there was supposed to be some ham in her refrigerator, and she's still best friends with her maid of honor of 60 years ago. I think like those are the details that actually make her more memorable than just the things that she said in her tape. Um, and it's important to say there are, is always time to collect a few of those details, and you don't want... I mean, I think sometimes um, you know we want to put too many details in. You need just one or two or three really memorable details to make somebody into a person that they remember instead of just this, this one clip that you're playing. Um, okay, next, turn a page. In daily news, it is really hard to, to give your story all the, uh, you know, to use all the good storytelling tools to have a beginning and a middle and end and the moment where the twist and everything changes and then everything's resolved. And, and I don't think we, we should try, but we can't always do that. But one, two, one, one thing that you can remember to do is just to turn one page in your story. And, but, and by that, I just mean, tell me what happened after what you already told me. Um, and even if only a half a day has passed, you can, you can follow up and the, and it, for some reason, it seems it's very satisfying in a story. Um, so, in my Sandy story, I obviously needed to answer the question of what happened to Mrs. Maynard, and it's it's just nice to know at the end that she left her house, unless you think she should have stayed. Um, but I mean, just knowing what happened is satisfying. 
And here are some other examples. Um, so in the Haiti earthquake story, that was also a one-day turnaround story, and I just, here's how I checked in at the end. By phone late in the evening, Joseph-Pierre Cadet says he did reach his mother. When I spoke to her the first time, she said, Son, I'm alive, I'm okay. I said, Mommy, I'm glad that you're okay. Now he just has to get down there to see her. So that's that one. And then in the special registration story, um, so first I'll play you a little. I went to the, I, after the workshop, I went to the line and talked to the people who were waiting in line. And here's those people. Easy. This week, the lines have wrapped around the corner at 26 Federal Plaza. By 5 a.m., there are men in line with legal papers and without. Around 9, these 20-somethings are feeling cold but defiant. If something happens, what's going to happen? They're going to kill us? That's it. They're going to send me home. No problem. When we go back to our country, we take all the money and we go back. They're losing. They're losing, not us. A musician from Morocco named Kadir is more hopeful. Even though he overstayed a visa, he was issued in 1998. They're going to make an investigation. If you are okay, they're going to let you stay. That's why I'm, I'm wishing for. I'd love to stay here, you know. Okay, so that's them in line. And then, because the line took so long, and apparently I did not want to stay up all night that night, this is how I turned the page and got them to check in with me. Kadir and one of the Syrians one, call my three, voicemail after midnight three, to say they've just completed the process. Today at 12.18 a.m. Hi, Maria. I just got out, so I'm so tired I'm going home. Hi, Maria. This is Kadir. I just came from immigration. Their passports were taken. They were held in a locked room on the 10th floor. And now they have court dates for February and March. Bye-bye. End of message. So it's just an example of really small. It doesn't take a lot of time. It's, I mean, this was a, just a, the solution that I came up with to following up with them. But it, it makes such a huge difference. I remembered those messages for a long time, which is why I'm playing them for you today. <laughs> um, okay. So the next one is, I called it, bring yourself with you. And I think there's actually been a lot of discussion about this the, the, in Joe's panel yesterday morning about ethics. There, there's been a lot of discussion, and um, honestly, I am not entirely clear what I mean, but I, <laughs> but I think it's important to, to talk about. Um, it, I think it's a complicated one to talk about, and it's been the subject of a lot of debate, like who the reporter should be in, in her story, his or her story. So here's what I mean when I say bring yourself with you, just that you should be honest and to yourself more than anyone about who you are in your story, that you're there. I think when I first started reporting, I thought that I could disappear from the story, and I really tried to all the time, but I, I don't think that's the right thing to do if you are in your story. I mean, if you're doing a non-narrated story, then, then you can do that. Um, but you're there. You can't pretend you're not, and sometimes you're really influencing or manipulating what's happening, as I was in the Sandy story, and that doesn't have to be a bad thing. It's up to you, and I, I think it's up to you to decide what's important to tell your listeners. As long as you know what role you're playing in the story, then you can make a good decision about, about what you need to tell the people that are listening. And I, so in the Sandy story, obviously I did it in first person. And so, and I, I think I did that mainly because it was the easiest, fastest way I could tell that story. Otherwise, how could I explain that Margaret Maynard had a phone and was calling her maid of honor when I had just said, like, nobody's phones are working. And um, 
uh, and the batteries are dead. So, um, and also just in terms of the structure, it was easy. There, um, in Laura Sullivan's um, session yesterday, she talked about, she said something that I was like, oh God, which I, she said something that I loved. She said, like, it, it can be lazy to use your own process as your device for telling the story. I think in this story it was okay, but I also really liked hearing her say that because I think sometimes it is the laziest thing to do to be like, well, here's how I figured it all out, and I'll use my own process to tell you how to do that. So you, you just have to think about it. If you have an important story to tell, you have to figure out why it's important and then tell that important story the best way you can. But, um, And then the other thing is I, about bringing yourself with you is I think that that honesty also means that you are bringing your own curiosity and you're asking the questions that you want to ask and that you think are interesting and making the observations that you think are interesting, not because they're your opinions, but because there are things that you've noticed and you've learned. And um, Paul Schneider, who is a great mix engineer and also a great, like, last round editor at WNYC, he's not an editor, but he is an editor, um, he said, yeah, you tweak the story to your own interest. And I think that that is honesty in reporting. Like, you're, if you're not interested in a story, you shouldn't be telling it. And if you are, and if you find your way to a different place that's interesting in it, that's the story you should be telling. Does that make sense? Okay. <laughs> um, okay. The last thing is the uh, on my list of strategies is the one thing that will make you do the story faster. And especially after I've told you to go out and get all this tape and leave your recorder on and linger and linger. Now, when you come back to make your story, do not log your tape. <laughs> Just write the story from your memory and then plug in the pieces, finding them while listening to as little of your tape as you possibly can. And I say that because, one, you can't do it. Like, for me, if I start listening to my tape... It's a disaster, I'm lo- and I don't have time. I get lost in it, and every detail seems interesting, or it fogs my memory of what's, what I came back with that was great. But if I come back, and like I, when I came back for this story, I had to do the two-way immediately, and I just wrote down the story as fast as I could to get on the air and, and talk it through with our host, and that was basically the exact same story that I did in the feature, just with tape plugged in. So you come back... You just write the story, you plug in your tape, you have to change the story because when you find your tape to plug in, you have to change it because you didn't write well into the tape and out of the tape. But, but I, I strongly urge you to resist logging your tape when you don't have time <laughs> because it will kill you. And this, and, and this really works. Like, it's so rare that you come back from a story not remembering the best moments and the best tape you have. I... I, I, I I know some people resist this, and I also resist it because I think I love the tape. I mean, that's why I do this job. I like, love being there with people, and then I love bringing it back and giving it to people. And um, uh, so I, I always want to go through it, and I have to tell myself not to. And when I have more time, I totally log my tape, and it takes me forever. It's very time-consuming for me. Okay, now I just have... Um, a little laundry list at the end of other strategies for for making your stories memorable. Um, and the first thing is play. You really can play with story. Like you can play a lot with stories that are going on Morning Edition or All Things Considered or the regular news shows. 
and you can play with how you craft things um, so that stuff doesn't sound exactly how you'd expect. You can play with, I mean, I'm about to play you an example of something where I played with even just how I was going to say that we had to change this guy's voice. And it makes people start listening if they hear something that's that's playful in that way. Um, and then, the, so I'm going to play two pieces from the story about um, uh, the fact that some dealers of weed dealers in California were not making enough money anymore because it became quasi legal there, and so moving to New York to where they could make more money because it's illegal. And I did this story for. Um, both WNYC and Planet Money. Alex Bloomberg was here, is here. He edited it. Um, um, but it's playful with the, the voice changing. And also I just decided, okay, I'm just going to tell this story through two people, just the, the um, dealer in New York and this special agent in California whose job it is to try to stop marijuana from traveling illegally across the country. So here's the, the opening of the story. Greetings from the front lines of the assaults on sobriety. This is Chuck. That's what he wants to be called. He's a San Francisco pot dealer. Welcome to the war on drugs. But we're going to make him sound like this. I'm happy to report that drugs is winning. Mm, Maybe more like this. You're tuned to WNYC, bourgeois assimilationists. Okay, the point is we've agreed to change this guy's voice, and here's where we've settled. Hi, we're helping keeping people stoned on a Friday in New York City. Oh, there's my phone ringing. Chuck came to New York from California to sell weed because here in New York, where his trade is 100% illegal, he can make more money. He spends pretty much every day dealing what he calls farm-to-table marijuana. What else do I need? To get ready, we step into the bedroom. This is it. A pile of clothes, a pile of weed, a bed to sleep on. He puts the pile of weed into a backpack, and we head to the subway. On the way down to the subway platform, we pass right by a cop. I just stroll past nonchalantly. This danger of being caught and jailed, Chuck is choosing this risk. He left a state where he could have sold marijuana in a storefront and came to a state where he has to deal under the table. In this case, literally, right here in a downtown diner, one of our first stops, he passes a baggie under the table to a client who folds his cash into the pages of a book and passes it back. Welcome to the contradictory-seeming economics of the nation's fast-changing marijuana laws. Okay, so that was the dealer. And here's the other guy who I also decided I was going to present in this different way. So here it is. But then came the next challenge, how to get the weed from California to New York, how to get it past people like Special Agent Roy Georgie. I usually catch Georgie on his cell, driving through the foothills of the Sierras with the radio on. Can you hear the music? Georgie is with the California Department of Justice, and he and the other guys on his task force spend their time trying to catch and arrest illegal growers and dealers. We're actually arresting people that are shipping it all over the country. One easy place to look, the FedEx or UPS in, say, Humboldt or Mendocino counties, California's pot country. Georgie and his guys will stop by and sort through all the outgoing packages looking for marijuana. And we'll spend one hour out there and identify 30 parcels. And that's looking at how many parcels total? I don't know the exact percentage, but about one out of every 15 going by is a good one. That's amazing. And 
It is. It really is. And it, it's an eye opener. You know, I got to put the phone down for one second. Hold on. Okay. So, I mean, this was, I was talking to him on the phone for a long time before I'd figured out how I was going to incorporate him into the story. And I think, like, I thought maybe I'm going to have to go to California and be with him or whatever. And finally, I realized I'm having such fun phone conversations with him. I can just put those phone conversations on the air. So, and that's, that's how it worked out. And um, so another way to play is, and this is something that I learned a lot in Planet Money, is play in your interviews, especially with people who are officials or, you know, who are ostensibly boring. There's so much chance to play. And I, yesterday, I, I, I sometimes say this out loud, and I did say it yesterday, so I'll say it again, like flirt. And I don't mean flirting like in a sexual way or, you know, I mean flirting in this broader sense where you're making the conversation into a fun, pleasurable conversation and, um, and, and people respond to that. You don't, you know, it, it helps a lot in, especially in stories that um, are drier. Like here's an example of this um, GDP story. This is a story about how some African countries are... Uh, Wait, somebody's asking a question. So, I'm just wondering how you got away with recording the scene in the diner where he's actually having it uh, exchanging, the money's exchanging and the guy's getting his pot for the other guy whose voice is distorted. How did I record the scene in the diner with the money being exchanged? Like, yeah, I mean, like, uh, why would I be sitting there recording? Like, yeah, or why would someone let you record them by drugs, I guess? Um, wait, oh, oh. Yes, that is a rare, that's a good question. <laughs> I forgot somebody might ask that question. I did not, I, I almost never record without telling people, but I, and the dealer knew I was going around with him recording, and he introduced me to people, but I did not say I was recording. And what I did was not, I, I like used hardly any of anybody's voice for that. Did you have a recorder under the table or something? I had it in my pocket, and it was a really loud pocket. If you ever do that, wear quiet clothes. Um, yeah, I I would I very rarely do that. I said this yesterday, but nobody asked me about this. That's like I think it's been like two or three times in my my years of reporting that I've ever recorded without telling people. In the first story you played with the flood, before you got to the woman's apartment, the neighbors were coming out, and you didn't ID them, and I feel like a lot of editors I've worked with would sort of require that all of these sort of tertiary characters are ID'd. Yeah. This story did go in on NPR, too. I mean, a, a reduced version. I think those guys were in, and I, I, it was probably an oversight. Did I definitely not ID them, the guys in the stairway? I don't think you named them. Okay. I think I got their names, and I, it might, like, again, this was produced, this, the scrappy situation in which this was produced, I, there are some flaws as a result, and I, I would try to, I would put their names in if I could, and I remember talking to them, I don't remember them telling, they knew I was, like, we went out, and, I, and they knew I was recording, and we talked more. Yeah, I, I mean, so. I guess just to, I'm, I'm not offering it as a critique, because I, I like that it moved faster because not everybody was named. Yeah. People are blowing by you, and it's part of the community, and maybe yeah. not everyone has to be named. 
Yeah, I mean, that's definitely the NPR rule. Everyone has to be named. I think WNYC has been a little less strict about that, unless you say why they're not, like Chuck is a, is a fake name, <laughs> the weed dealer. Um, should I just stop and start? In? I have a few more of these little straws. I should do them? Okay. Um, okay, so the GDP story, I'm just going to play two little clips from it because it seems like it should be dry, and then I talk to an economist and and it's a fun, and I also like this piece of tape because you, we're all taught to like never ask yes or no questions, but this yes or no question was funny. So, so uh, this is the beginning of the story, and this is the um, it's about how uh, how did I set this up? Okay, so how African countries are recalculating their GDPs using updated data. And it's causing these huge jumps in GDPs, even though there's no actual change in the, in the, there's no actual change at all, except for the number. So here's the beginning. Best case scenario, this GDP trick will help people like these two guys, Bayo Purikom and Zubair Abubakar. To get better phone reception, they're standing on the roof of the office where they invent cool applications for Nigeria's low-tech cell phones. This one is a game where players pretend to drive the notoriously wild buses that these two can see from where they're standing. Yeah, because the drivers are aggressive, they drive rough. And they can be very unfriendly. <laughs> the goal is to pick up as many passengers as you can while weaving through traffic and evading cops. These guys think they can make a lot of money for some savvy foreign investors. But one of the many challenges they face... On paper, Nigeria's economy doesn't look as dazzling as it could. Okay, so then I explain the whole rebasing thing, GDP. I won't make you guys listen to that part, but here's the next part. With and this could make Nigeria's economy number one in sub-Saharan Africa, surpassing South Africa. Absolutely. Across the Atlantic, emerging markets analyst Sebastian Spio-Garbra says that new number could do a lot for Abubakar and Purikom. Picture a Silicon Valley firm looking to invest in a foreign video game startup. All of a sudden, when they go to their board meeting and they are looking at the top 10 economies in the world, Nigeria will be up there with Brazil, India and China. It puts them in the big leagues. The funny thing is, all that potential movement of capital, if it happens, it will all be based on a new number, not a new reality. So I have a sort of silly question. Aren't international investors smarter than that? I mean, don't they recognize that this is just a number that's changed, not any reality on the ground? No, they are not. <laughs> <laughs> no, they are not. So it's not totally fair because I think he's an, a very engaging talker. But it's the, you know, you, you create a situation where an answer can be funny. And that is something I totally learned from Planet Money, from working at Planet Money. They, they know how to get people who talk about ostensibly dry things to talk about them in really entertaining ways and to make the conversation fun. And the other thing, I'm going to play a, a Zoe Chase story. I love, um, I love Zoe's reporting. I always want to listen to her when she's talking on the air. And this is an example of just not using the expert at all. And this has been said, I think, in a lot of sessions this weekend. But um, that if you can use a person... And communicate the expertise. You know, I, I, I know experts are people too. <laughs> but if you can use, you know, a person who's involved in the story in some way instead of the expert, 
it's great. And this is just an instructive piece of tape. And it's from a story about Taylor Swift, which could have been played this week, too. It's about how Taylor Swift is so smart. Is such a great businesswoman. Ever. She has picked off the shelf only the outlets that would give her the most money for every album sold. So iTunes, clearly. And then Target has the deluxe edition. Walmart has it. She has this new thing with Walgreens. Papa John's. This is a new thing. You can order a Taylor Swift pizza box. And with it comes the album. I called another Taylor Swift expert, the editor of Digital Music News, Paul Reznikoff. He confirmed everything the 17-year-old said. They have to have it. But the tools Taylor Swift didn't choose are almost savvier than the ones she did. To be the first one at school to hear the new album, you had to pay full price for the privilege. Because Taylor Swift did not release her singles on Spotify or any other streaming site. Spotify pays pennies on the dollar. Taylor Swift skipped it. It doesn't necessarily make sense to... Uh, release on something like Spotify because... You know what? We'll just let Lindsay take this one. Taylor Ruddy has so many fans that she doesn't need to have that, like, incentive. Like, oh, listen to this and then you'll like it and then you'll buy it. I feel like she's past that level. People will literally just buy it. <laughs> um, okay. Last thing is um, I, uh, another reporter that I love is Gregory Warner. He's here. I don't know if he's here, in here. but um, And he just does so much great work. And I was, I was trying to think of examples, and I talked to him. And there's, the one thing that he does so well is giving you an entrance into a story that is about one thing but that might be unfamiliar. or um, he, he sort of takes you there through the back door. And this is a, a story about a, an ice cream parlor opening in Rwanda. And it's like the whole story really is about that. But then there's one moment in the story where you're like, oh, story is about that. That one little thing that he's used this whole vehicle to get to. So here's that story or a piece of it. Now, the ice cream shop was launched to give the women more income. But ice cream turned out to face an even more tenacious taboo. In Rwanda, it's highly unseemly to eat anything in the street. That rules out ice cream carts, also ice cream stands. Madeline Uimana is one of the women drummers. Imagine eating an avocado or a banana in the road, she says. It's shameful. Everybody will laugh at you. Remember, this is a woman who will drum on sacred cowhide despite the prohibitions of tribal elders. But she won't eat a quick snack in the road if she's hungry. What do you think about a person who eats an avocado or eats a banana on the road? What do you think that person is like inside? You're, you're, you're scrunching up your face. It's not something very nice. She would consider him a person who does not respect himself. Now, it's hard to unpack this particular taboo, but Rwandan culture discourages the public display of personal needs, not just hunger, but also grief. Tears are acceptable only in specific mourning periods. Some say that Rwandans' capacity to put this public mask on sadness is what's held the country together, allowed killers and survivors to remain neighbors for the last 20 years. But when ice cream comes, uh, we would like to change the culture. I, I think that is so brilliant. I mean, because I think there's a way you can go into doing that story and say... 
Like, I'm going to do this story about this cultural thing that's going on. And, and when if you start telling people that's what you're going to tell them, then there's a certain desire in all of us, I think, to be like, I don't, I don't want to think about that. But then instead doing this ice cream story and you're going along and you're listening and then this thing happens. And every time, even when I, I've now heard it quite a few times, and every time I hear it, I get like, it closes in on me in that, that one moment. And I feel like, okay, the whole story was for that one moment, even though it's kind of interesting about the ice cream shop and everything. And that is all I have to say before your questions come. Thank you. And for some reason, today took longer, I think, than yesterday. So I, I, we may be, I don't know what time we're supposed to leave. Are we supposed to be done now? Do people want to ask questions, or do people want to go? We, we did some questions, so I won't feel bad. But should we do, like, does anyone have a question? Okay, let's do, like, five minutes of questions. Okay, so in the story that you had um, about the flooding in New York, I feel like the sound was really, really rich. Like, the sound in the fridge I was rich, so I guess I was just wondering what your techniques were for, like, I'm opening the fridge, but I'm recording, and I'm yeah. going down the stairs, and, like, still recording. Yeah, I can tell you exactly. I, have, I had not a shotgun mic, which would have been better for picking up all that stuff, but when I'm... When things are scrappy, I always feel like taking my RE50, which is just like the scrappiest microphone that you just can't mess it up, but you do have to hold it close to things. But what I do is I stick it in my armpit. And while I'm, anytime I'm recording where I have to also do things or if I have to write something down or moving around, and it was dark, I mean, you guys heard, it was very dark, like there was a lot of... uh, yeah, I, I had to do a lot more with my hands, and so I would—it st- was under my armpit all that time. Except like if for the sound of the slippers, I definitely got close because you can't—you have to get close to things if you're using that microphone. You can't hold it far away. Hi. Um, so I was wondering. Hi. Radio <laughs> rookies. Radio rookies. <laughs> um, I was wondering what you do because uh, a lot of these are um, incredibly insightful and useful strategies when you're producing when you're in the field Mm -hmm. and I'm wondering about before you go into the field and after strategies to make your stories memorable you know some people Mm -hmm. pre-interview and then even when you're cutting tape what decisions do you make so that the ultimate product is one that uh, people remember okay my my first answer to that is that you should listen to Robert Smith's session from two years ago at Third Coast because he did a great session about that was all about great storytelling in a really efficient way. And he, um, and the, the thing that he does so well and that happens a lot at Planet Money also is, um, I mean, the thing that I would say that I took away from it most is you imagine the story that you need, and especially if you need it fast. Like, what are the elements? Like, what will be the, the thing that will make people want to listen to this? And you imagine it, and you try to, I don't want to say manufacture, but like put yourself in the situation that will get you that tape. But really, he's like, it's a great session, and I would listen to that. <laughs> but so, wait, that answers part of your question about planning. I mean, but I, you use that all the time. You know, in this, in this, I would say, because 
I literally, I had gotten on my bike and I was just going to see what was going on. I, Karen, my editor, had decided, let's look at the tall public housing because people hadn't been talking about that. Um, but then the, my plan came, I think I felt kind of planless compared to usual. And then I read that email and I was like, here's a good plan. I will go to this woman's house, find out how she is, and hopefully she'll be happy to let me record. And um, uh, So, yeah, I mean, planning is really key, but I don't have that much to say about it right now. <laughs> and then the cutting tape part, again, it's about remembering what's memorable. Um, and if, in this case, the whole journey was really memorable to me, and I felt like it, it communicated something that was important about like what it's actually like to be in those situations following these different people down along. So, um, so I, I didn't want to just take like a chunk for this part of the story and a chunk for that. I wanted it to have all that, those little, the, the, the bottom layer. I feel like it happens for me a lot when I'm in a lingering sort of zone that people will be like, why do you want to, what do you, what do you want from me? Or why are you talking to me kind mm-hmm. of, or why do you want to record this? Can you give some examples of just what you say to people who yeah. are kind of, what are you doing I'll, here? I'll, I'll say, yeah, I mean, often it's sometimes, you know, some, a, a lot you're with people who have no idea what public radio is. So, I mean, if people do know public radio, it's a little, it's easier in a way because they're like, oh, yeah, those things where you're recording the sound and then you t- put it underneath. And But otherwise, I will say, I'm you know, I'm here just trying to, you know, explain. Uh, first of all, total honesty. Like, I am here trying to find out what it's like in this moment here and... Um, and I, I'll sometimes say, if people are, are confused about the recording of not words or, you know, like not interviews, I'll say it's, you know, I, tr- I, I am, it's like documentaries on Channel 13 or Channel 9, depending where you are. Like, PB, people are more familiar with television documentaries. And so sometimes I'll just say it's just like gathering the sounds of what's happening. But I, the main thing I would say is just, total honesty and like explaining until people understand and are comfortable with it. And I, again, will say I, if they don't want to be recorded, then that's it. Except for those people I snuck and recorded. <laughs> uh, just kind of a big general question is like, where do you find your stories? I generally struggle. I, I either feel like a story is too small to be relevant as a news story or so big as a news story that everybody's already covered it in a way that mm-hmm. trying to do like the human side of it seems har- harder. Yeah. Lingering. I'm serious. I, I, I went to journalism school, which isn't for everybody, but it was good for me. Um, and I remember, so I was there, and they, it was Columbia Journalism Graduate Program, and at that time it was nine months, and it was totally packed, and you just, they, like, it was hard. They just worked you constantly. And I remember um, between the semesters, I took like one day off and went out and played in, in New York City that day. And I, from just being out and around, I ended up, I, I got like five stories out of that day after a whole semester of being like, what should I do a story about? What should I do a story about? So 
I really think stories come from being in the world and talking to people, and they come from the other stories you do. But like, if you go out and do a story and you're doing about one thing, even if it's a city council hearing or whatever it is, then you linger and talk to people, and then people start telling you, hey, there's this thing going on that is worth talking, you know, that's bothering me or that's entertaining or whatever. You just, that's, you find stories from being out in the world. I think. Um, I'm wondering about um, the stuff that happens that, that, that you're talking about with lingering with Jad Abumrad, I think called the little shit, um, and that you put in your stories. What if that happens, um, this happened to me recently, on a tape sync where I'm the reporter, I'm on the phone, and the person who's recording, like something weird happens while they're recording, but I'm not observing it, and so I can't talk about it firsthand. Um, and I'll just Wait, give. I don't understand. Well, I'll just give the example. So I'm I'm talking to this person on the phone. I'm I'm re- and I'm doing the interview, and I've got somebody else there who's recording oh, the tape sync. Okay. Yeah, tape sync. So, um, and so, what happened was that we were recording, and this it was at this person's house, and this was an expert person also, so it makes it difficult to work it into the story anyway. But um, she had a squirrel that like came up to her door. And it turned out that she had, like, a relationship with this squirrel and, and, like, was feeding it. And, like, it wouldn't go away and it kept coming back. And she had, like, a name for the squirrel. It was just the craziest thing that happened. And I was just sort of on the other end. I kind of started interviewing her about the squirrel a little bit. But really, all the action was going on where I couldn't see it. And so it would be hard for me to write about it and, like, put it in the story. It's such a specific question. I know. I'm sorry. <laughs> but, sorry. Okay, but, no, here's what I would say. I think that could help you that you weren't there because you have to get her to truly like, I mean you might end up with the better tape where she has to describe exactly what's going on and everything because you're not there and you can't see it I mean people listening in the radio aren't there for any of our stories so it, actually you could use it to your advantage is, is my answer okay. hopefully Bye. that's helpful to someone else who's done a tape sync <laughs> <laughs> and with a person who has a squirrel for her and, I know everybody wants to get to cookies, but just quickly, your narration has such wonderful, vivid details in it. How do you, I mean, do you just remember those things naturally, or are you sort of going, and the stairwell has a crack? No, actually, you know, I think a lot of the reason I am on tape so much saying things is because I was using the tape recorder to remind myself of things, and then I ended up using the tape more than I expected, but I I actually, I, I... a lot of that was because that thing, like I got the, I, I couldn't take notes, it's dark, whatever, and so I was saying things out loud. But no, I would say I am a really bad rememberer of details and I get them wrong. I just did, like, I'll, I'll be like, it's, the letters were that were black and they'll be white or something like that. It's And it's not a detail that matters, but it matters, like you don't want to get things wrong. So I have to write them down or say them a lot, and yeah, but some of them are, are are like an image that I have from the experience. Um, I totally agree that you kind of have to you you have to interact with the world to get story ideas and get really good ideas. But um, I'm from the Bay Area, and I'm sure you have this uh, scenario in New York where you have a, a, a large pool of um, eccentrics, let's say wacka doodle doos who try to talk to you among everybody, right? And so like. I'm curious. I have a hard time trying to figure like how to how much time to spend with somebody when they approach me. They see a, you know I'm recording with the mic and I'm doing some some interesting and you know they could be some a, a concerned citizen who wants yeah. to like talk to me versus just like 
Yeah, I would definitely say that when you're out recording and reporting, you want to choose the people and not let them choose you in general. That's not always the case. And if you're just gathering, you know, if you're just there and people are talking to you because, and you're just, it's not on tape and it's not for your story, then, you know, it's just your judgment. But in general, when I'm, like, if you're covering a protest or something, you never, never talk to the people who come to you. <laughs> Go into the crowd and find the people that you want to, you want to talk to. I mean, there's, there's problems with that, too, because your bias comes out by the people you pick or whatever. But it's better than, than just getting the stories of people who want to talk into a mic a lot. Thank you so much for coming and staying late. <laughs>